Welcome to the Future of Dermatology podcast. The next episodes are excerpts from a residency panel that we did last year with doctors Kathy Fields, Greg Morganroth, David Murat, and Jason Hawks. And we asked them various questions about the field of dermatology, their journey, and any advice that they might have. We divided these up into four sections so that each one can be focused on a specific topic. The first episode will be on um, what we call the love and hate parts in the field of dermatology. And we asked all speakers to provide valuable insight into being a dermatologist and what they love and hate about the field. The second part is about their journey and the drive uh, into what led them to where they are now in each of their careers. The third portion is on the financial considerations and negotiating salaries, an important one, especially for earlier career physicians. The fourth one is on prioritizing and balancing a, a fulfilling life, which is arguably maybe the most important portion to listen to. So thank you for joining us. So I'll go over to our next question. The next questions that he has go actually a little bit more into the nitty gritty of the finances. So he has it on the list. Any tips for negotiating salaries? And also, if he could ask what fair starting salary ranges, compensation packages are for different practice options. Um, so I might start with Dr. Fields again, if you're okay with it, if if you have any thoughts of negotiating salaries or any specifics when it comes to the financials. I'll defer to Greg. He's the superstar here because that's yeah. what he yeah. does. I, mine is uh, basically you, you go to work and you get a percentage, you know, minus the overhead that you're that's it. And pretty simple. Um, if you are starting out in private practice, people need to remember that it's slow. Even if uh, an elder is giving you all their patients, you have to build that trust and the patients want to uh, come back to see you. So um, it takes years really to build up a private practice and to earn that credibility. Uh, so unlike a Kaiser where you've got a salary, it's flat, that's it. Whether you're sitting there playing with your pencil or you're running like crazy, you're fixed. Um, so in somebody like me, it's, you know, if you're busy and you're doing all procedures all day long, you can make a lot of money. Um, if it's a slow rain day and the schedule crashes, you are not making any money, but the overhead continues. So on a different scale then, so I would defer right to Greg on how, you know, an incoming person comes and how it was handled. So, so this is a really complex, um, issue to discuss because there's a lot of different factors. I will tell you that the last uh, three to five years has changed mainly because of private equity-owned groups that are offering very high first-year guarantees that frankly are realistically not even achievable by the first-year person coming in. And a lot of these higher guarantees are in what I would call less desirable areas. And I think that what the incoming, uh, the new graduate needs to understand is that if someone's paying you $500,000 a year, your first year to work in rural Wisconsin or in Nebraska or in New Mexico or in the panhandle of Florida, that does not equate to a highly desirable competitive job in San Francisco or Beverly Hills. And I think that what I find the most frustrating as someone that does hire a bunch of people and talk to a lot of people 
is that the young physician does not appreciate the difference in those circumstances. So, um, and what I find, which has been frustrating over time, is that instead of thinking about what your private practice job is going to look like five or 10 years from now, I find that some of the resident physicians are more enamored with the initial first year pay and they end up joining practices, some of which work out, but a lot of which do not because there's always, you know, some strings attached to those very high salaries. One of the things that's important to remember is that if someone's guaranteeing you $500,000 your first year and you're seeing 22, 25 patients a day, you're primarily a general dermatologist and they're paying you 40% of collections, it's highly unlikely you'll be able to continue to make that amount of money every year thereafter. So I've tried to encourage my fellows, I've tried to encourage people that do call me for advice to don't think about like what the first year option is because a lot of times those first year guarantees are enticements to join the practice that they're having a hard time recruiting someone to because there's some negatives. And think about where you want to spend your career the next you know, 20, 30 years because it's always better to take a really good job in the right place even if it's a little bit less money up front, if that's where you want to spend your career. But what I do find is that there are there's a segment of young physicians that seem to bounce from job to job, trying to get the highest guaranteed pay the first year. And I just think they're short selling themselves for like their long-term career. So there's like 80 other components about negotiating for your salary. But what I would tell you is that uh, I, I, I don't know of a single large practice, private equity-owned practice, Kaiser, Sutter, and you know our, our applicants look at all these other options as well. No one's underpaying anyone. Sutter's not saying we're going to pay you 50000 less than everyone else, nor, nor is uh, Kaiser. Uh, there, there's sort of a market rate for what a first year should be making, and it depends on the geographic area you're in. And then what I would view with suspicion are the offers that are fifty to hundred to 150000 plus more. Because those private practices don't have higher reimbursement, and I don't know how they truly capture the ability to have you earn that money. There's going to be something on the other end that you'll be paying for. I don't know if anyone else has an opinion. Uh, Robin, you probably deal with this all the time. But I, I think that you have to look at your job in a long-term picture. Remember, you are physicians are probably the best professionals at delayed gratification. And David, especially with his uh, thank you for your service to the to the to our country. But you know, David is excellent at delayed gratification as well. And I think that the uh, temptation to answer to a big number or set expectations because of a Midwest offer that's really high, you have to be careful to 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 view the opportunity in the long-term space, not what happens in the first year. When, when I first got out of the military, that was a situation uh, I was faced with too. And uh, I mean, again, it, I'm glad I made the decision I made, but I'm also glad I avoided those other situations. Um, because again, sometimes those are unrealistic and it's not sustainable. And in areas maybe that you don't really want to go to, because I, I agree with all the preceding comments, you know, part of the thing was, I mean, I was born and raised in the Bay Area. I wanted to work, live, and raise my family in the Bay Area. That's the reason I picked the job I picked in the location that I picked is because I wanted a very similar situation. My wife was raised in San Francisco. 
Uh, and again, most of our family is out here. So we were really looking to get a job in a place where we could raise our family, our extended family is at, um, and in a situation, again, li living in California, the Bay Area, I mean, I don't know how much better it gets anywhere else. Um, so that was an optimal situation for me personally. Um, the other reason, again, I picked Kaiser is uh, you're absolutely right. The delayed gratification is really what I was shooting for on this one um, was because I, I knew down the road uh, I was going to be taken care of. And that's really what I was looking for because, um, you, you know, if I wanted to, I mean, it, we, we have a, I, I feel a very competitive starting salary. Um, and, and there are other things in there too. There are, you know, certain bonuses and other things that are available and Narlin, our recruiter can go over that stuff. But the, the, the main thing I knew was that if I worked my 20 something years, I was going to get a retirement that now I get to go do what I want to do. And I'm still going to go practice. I'm looking into other situations. Hello, Pam. Um, but, um, uh, you know, I'm looking into other situations where, uh, you know, I can still practice some, but I'm, I'm kind of flipping the formula. So rather than my life revolving around my work, my work is going to revolve around my life. That's kind of what I'm shooting for. Um, and, and in any given situation, I mean, and I think the other thing that people have to understand, again, it, it, it's a long, it is a marathon, it is not a sprint. And be careful of short-term gains that you're sacrificing for long-term outcomes. You know, you really got to be careful with that whole situation. That's just, you know, kind of coming from a, my end of looking at it, you know, 40 years back. The, the other thing I would say is, uh, again, you want to find a situation where you're going to be happy and, and geographically, you know, uh, pick an area that works for you. You know, you want to be in a situation that works for you. And if you're, if you're a hard charger, I mean, you know, you, you may want to think things like private practice and stuff. The other thing, again, for me, which I, I said previously, really, it's the people I work with. That, that was a critical factor in, in staying with the situation that, that I was in. I, I just work with, you know, people I like working with. And if I wasn't in that situation, I may have decided to look for something different. But that was a critical factor is, you know, it was location, uh, the ability to have sort of the work, you know, life balance I was looking for um, in, in an area that I wanted to work. And, and it's just, you know, I, I was lucky everything sort of fell in line. And I think that's a similar story I'm hearing with a lot of other people. Certain things just fell in line for me and it all really worked. It's again, it's not as easy as it sounds. This is all work. And that's the other thing I just want to emphasize is, you know, yes, we're dermatologists. It's terrific, but it's also a, a you know, it at times can be some tough sledding. Uh, it, it's no matter what career path you pick, um, it, it, it can be a, a tough situation. But again, no matter what career path you pick, the compensation is going to be there. And in the end, um, you know, everything will be quote unquote worth it for you. Uh, just one comment about that. Uh, the quote goes like this expectation without work or equals entitlement. And so for the, everybody who's out in practice, we grumble when we see the younger people coming out who come in. So I've interviewed quite a few just demand a high salary and want to work three days a week. Like, really? Do you understand business at all? You know, let me sit you down and explain 
what's really going on or what is overhead. And as a result, uh, with little education, you understand that you're not entitled. Uh, you may bill a $300 something on a super bill, but what insurance pays is a nightmare. And the person you have to pay to collect that small number. So um, do take the time to get educated. Do focus uh, on the business side, which residency does not teach you. So you can have a real understanding of how medicine every year is cut, 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 and the overhead goes up, up, up. So for Greg in particular, I'm focusing on him to manage all those practices and people and the salaries, and you got to go up 7% from last year um, to keep up with inflation, and there's no lidocaine, it's in back order. Wow. Yes, it seems very easy to go off to a Kaiser and not have to manage all of the, the detail. But for you coming out in practice, please take the time to educate and understand business. And you'll be a great employee or independent uh, when you respect what's really going on and not entitled to get, you know, half a million a year. Ha, forget it. <laughs> That's going to be one. Yeah. So, so I'll give you some interesting insight. Um, there's a lot of stuff going on that you don't know about. In fact, there are two practices in Sacramento, prominent practices that have sold out to private equity recently. They're not changing their name, so you don't know that. Practices on the peninsula. So the new uh, mo the new process now is you buy a practice. When I buy a practice, I like to call mergers, but we they become a California Skin Institute. And what's happening now is people are selling their practices and they keep the name of the practice, so you don't know. But one of the things that I would tell you that's been very enlightening, this has been going on for years. When I'm talking about areas like then the peninsula, you know, just where all the, the the path practices are, the physician overhead in those practices hovers between 65 and 70%. So when you apply to a physician and you want to join their practice, let's just pick uh, Menlo Park, desirable area. Uh, the, the the applicant does not realize that those physicians take home less than 40% of what they bring in themselves. And when you come on board and you're asking for 40%, uh, you're, you're, now, you're making more than they are, which seems crazy, but it's true. But then to ask on top of that for a initial starting salary that's disproportionate to what you can bring in, let's say $100,000 less you can bring in, those practices cannot afford to pay you $100,000 out of their pocket. And there's a real dynamic here that I think that people think that all these practices are in prominent locations are, are doing well. They're not doing poorly, but they don't have the excess cash to support you. And that's one of the drivers lately of people selling out to private equity because they get a big check, they get paid a percentage of collections, they don't have to worry about all those other things. Having said that, it's not taking anything away from the private practitioners, but it's insight for you in that in the desirable areas, whether it's Beverly Hills or Santa Monica, Palo Alto, San Francisco, these are not highly profitable practices unless you're a super producer, unless you're doing 2,000 most cases a year, or you're doing $25,000 facelifts. The other thing that I want to point out about jobs, uh, which is very important that people don't necessarily understand, so we don't miss it on topic, is that you should be a W-2 employee as an employee. You should not be a 1099 for a number of different reasons. Primarily, it's probably not completely appropriate in terms of the IRS, but you don't want to give up the uh, rights that you have as an employee. You don't want to have to pay for your own benefits. 
and um, and you want to make sure that uh, everything is sort of in line. Number two, uh, you should understand that PATH and Stanford and UCSF get paid a certain percentage of collections. Then there's an average sort of PPO rate. Then there are lower rates. Those lower rates might be a physician that has not renegotiated their PPO contract for 20 years, or they've done it three or four times and they don't realize that the insurance company just picks the lowest contract that's still active. If you don't terminate your insurance contract, that's your rate. And so when, and then you have some private practices like ours that have, you know, reimbursement rates between the average practice and PAF and Sutter, uh, PAF Sutter, uh, Stanford, UCSF. And so 40% of collections at CSI is very different than 40% of collections in the average dermatology practice, which is also very different from a practice that might have capitated or HMO plans, which are even lower. So a, 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 an offer of a percentage of percent, so for example, fifty percent of a sixty dollars office visit is thirty dollars, but forty percent of a of a hundred dollars office visit is forty dollars. Right? It's thirty three percent more. So you cannot compare percentage of collections offers, whether it's from Stanford or UCSF or CSI and else, without knowing what uh, the reimbursement is. One of the little problems is that it's illegal to share these reimbursements with you unless you do it in a way which is a blend, so an overall percentage, because physicians can't share contracts. So think about being a W-2 employee, be suspicious of being a 1099 employee, independent contractor. Think about percentage of collections has to be, you have to know what that percentage is of. And then um, you know think about and understand that if you want to be in Palo Alto, or in San Francisco, in uh, Pacific Heights, those are areas that are very competitive. The overheads are high, and uh, there's a lot of dermatologists there. And you have to sort of adjust your expectations for what your first year pay and potentially ongoing income would be. Is that fair, Kathy? Excellent, excellent. I think you put it into perspective, and then therefore the entitlement phase goes out of you know their heads, which is good. Definitely some things that kind of gone through my mind. Um, I personally, you know, I sort of say this respectfully, but I, I don't know that there's necessarily a sense of entitlement from the younger group. I, I think it all hinges on the fact that it's not taught. Like, how, how do you expect these groups to understand that? I think the system has failed trainees in the business side of medicine. That is just a fact. And I think there has to be a little bit of understanding on both the, uh, you know, new resident and also the practices because it, it, if it's sort of a mutually beneficial thing. So we want, you know, the residents to understand that, but we have to acknowledge that they've never learned it at all. It's not taught in any capacity, nor do I think any of the contract stuff is really transparent. I mean, I can speak from the university system. This like crazy X plus Y plus Y prime plus Z, like that is just made up garbage that, you know, somebody did to make some calculation so that you have to believe that the way they got to what Y is, what the average argue, all of this is this overcomplication. I think what the trainees are trying to understand is like, I, I just, I want to, I want to feel like it's fair, but they don't know what fair is. They don't, they've never seen RVUs in training. 
right? Most time trainees don't do billing. So I think I feel like some of these, sometimes the entitlement can come from these practices that are looking down like, you guys are so dumb. I can't believe you don't know this. And I think we have to be really, really careful. I think there is a problem in both systems is that I think we really need that education. And and I think that mentorship really needs to be there. Um, there was, and so I think we just, I, I want to be careful because I don't think any group is wrong. I just think that we're all struggling to try to find some happiness in something that's pretty opaque when you get right down to it from insurance reimbursements to all sorts of issues. There's just opacity across the healthcare system. And that's, that's a real struggle. So I think one, it's okay to not understand this. It's okay to have a lot of questions and you should ask a lot of questions, find someone that will like sit down with you, try to explain it. There are people that understand it much, much better than you will, obviously, but that's fine. That's okay. Like you can learn it. It's not that complicated. Uh, you just have to spend some time. It just as, as, as you said, or as to, you know, sitting down and learning, you know, which procedures do, which, I mean, that's an important thing that we start to learn about what am I capable of producing? Because if I know what I'm capable of producing, then I can start to negotiate that. You know, the, the details though, come, I think Greg hinted at this, that this 40% of this percent collections, it is, it's such a tertiary quaternary component that you miss the primary pieces. And, and I totally agree with that comment. And I would say that having been, you know, at different universities throughout my training, I've seen that 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 number becomes more and more meaningless over time. And what really matters are all the other things that we don't spend time talking about. So, you know, Greg mentioned Paul Hosley, a good friend of mine that was a colleague at UC Davis, but the details um, for our struggle in the community practices, for example, because we were outside the university system, um, wasn't the salary numbers. It wasn't the calculations. It was all of the other things. It was the, you know, difficulty with support staff, right? So if you have a busy schedule and you know you can see patients and you're productive, that doesn't really matter if you don't have good staff or if they don't consistently staff you or if you show up and you don't have derm blades or you show up and you don't have lidocaine. And so I think the other part of these contracts is how are these practices going to support you? They're happy to pack your schedule full and maybe ask you to see patients at every five minute intervals, but if you don't have a good support structure, then that is the opposite of work-life balance because you're going to spend so much time working on these things. You know, I think one system that's been broken in, in some of these bigger groups are the idea that patients can send my chart messages, for example, through Epic. Well, there's no limitations there. And so we're spending tons and tons of time working on my chart and answering questions. Prior authorizations, especially like for me doing biologics, um, you know, my, me seeing 28 patients is not the same as someone else seeing 28 patients that are all skin checks, right? So, but the system doesn't really take into account complexity fully. Like we get paid a little bit more, but nobody pays you for education. Nobody pays you for the extra time to get biologics approved. And, and I think that those are all struggles that have to be sort of taken into account here. And, and, and so for me, when I distill it all down, what I really want to understand is that I want to know I'm getting paid fairly. And I actually don't care what that end number is. But what I want to know most importantly is that I'm going to be able to practice the way I like to practice. I might want to spend 
20 or 30 minutes with a really complex postular psoriasis patient. And that's okay because that's that's what I'm going to have to do to deliver the, the care I feel good about. And I know I'm going to take a hit on that financially. But so what you really need is a leader that gets that, that says, look, I want to help you see the, the patients that you want to see in the way you want to do it. And, you know, it might adjust your compensation a little bit, but let's just talk through that. If you're okay with that and it's the way you want to practice, great. Um, you know, here's how I'm going to support you in your clinical efforts. Here's how I'm going to support you from prior authorizations. Here's how I'm going to support you from staffing. Here's how I'm going to support you from all the messages that you're going to get barded, um, bombarded on all the time. And hey, my neighbor has this thing on their little on their son. You know what it is? Like, there, there. We need some of those safeguards because the work-life balance conversations that's coming from trainees, I think, is sometimes interpreted as entitlement. I think. We, we have to be careful there because I think people are saying, I, I want to spend time with my family. I want to have kids. I want to be at home. I want to do some of these other things, but they don't know the other side of the equation, which is that how do those activities translate into a paycheck. And, and so I, I think these are conversations that we need to be having more often. They need to be built into the training program. Um, and, and I think at the end of the day, what it really matters is, can I make a salary that I'm comfortable with, but more importantly, practicing in a way that I'm happy because as David said, it really is that marathon. Uh, you know, you can do anything, uh, you know, you want long-term if it's something that is sustainable, but a lot of these practice models, these venture capital groups, et cetera, that are, are seeing patients at very unreasonable times those patients are, those providers are burning out. We're seeing this across the board, people that are unhappy. It's not sustainable. So that sustainability is a variable over my training in, you know, less than 10 years that has just taken, come up to the top about, you know, like seeing patients in the way I want to see them in a way that feels right and isn't crossing over into these boundaries of, of every personal aspect of my life. And, and I think those are, those are conversations that trainees need to keep having with the people that they're negotiating with say help me understand these i don't i'm not familiar with these things can you talk me through that can you connect with people in the practice that can speak on these points so uh, that, that that's kind of the, the way i would look at it jason i think that's an excellent lecture that you should be giving to all the residents in the country because they're not getting that perfectly well said messaging that you you just articulated um, there really uh, is a big difference on what's going on out in the real world and, you know, residency training. So well said, and please transmit that all over the planet because the expectations on the outside are very, very different. And of course, depends on the area of the country that you're trained in. Uh, so, you know, a New York resident coming out, coming off, uh, you know, Fifth Street, Fifth Avenue, you know, has a, a very interesting set of uh, demands compared to, say, Idaho. So it's a different world. But uh, that education is why everybody's on this call today. So I'm glad we all put a little time into this one. The next I would discuss is non-competes. And then, Fair, uh, what you just did. And I, I think this is the part that's the most fun. Um, all of our colleagues are complaining bitterly about uh, electronic records and this accessibility, and you've got to respond immediately into these chat rooms, on demand, on demand, without pay. But if you can cordon that off to your three days a week, you can become on a telemedicine psoriasis. That's brilliant. 
You can really be the expert in that in that thing that you really love and take it out of your day job and make it your other day job uh, that can really be your passion. And I think that's really what makes dermatologists so lucky. It's so special that we have so much more we can do. We're not limited to being uh, overrun by you know a scenario that Jason just articulated. There's tremendous opportunity uh, to do great things uh, as, because you're a dermatologist. Yeah, I'd like to add just a little more color. The practices that I would, if I was a young doctor coming out, that I would really want to join, they would give me the career opportunities that I'm looking for as an individual. They're not the practices offering exorbitant uh, first-year salaries. The, the, they're not the practices that you're going to be able to go in there and say, I demand this, I demand that, yet you only have a year of practice or a residency experience. So the highest caliber, highest quality practices in private practice, like Kathy's practice, like I like to think of my practice, um, it, it's a, uh, it, it would be a lifetime opportunity to work with Kathy for you. And you know what? Uh, she's going to be fair, and you have to understand that. It's the noise created by the profit-motivated um, groups that are either trying to sell or trying to increase their profitability for a higher valuation for their investors, or they're the smaller practices that see their way out of uh, the aggravation they're taking is to sell and to buy hiring one or two young doctors and getting pro forma credit for their performance increases the valuation of their business. So in your first or second year, it's sold. Those are the people that are taking a financial stretch to make that happen. That's what you have to understand. No one's going to give you free money. And you just have to really think about trying to cut through all that noise and red tape. And, and, I, and I actually regret that most of this seminar has been on money because money is really, as you learn, is like the least important thing. Uh, here I am. I have four children. I'm in my late fifties, uh, here I am ski. Like I, I'm, uh, I'm taking a pay cut so I can ski with my kids so I can go away, uh, you know, uh, with them. And so I just want you to know that money's important, but I think we're emphasizing it too much. Your health, time with your family, time with your friends, time with your spouse. Those are things that we as physicians tend to sacrifice. And I, I would say anyone that knows me knows that I was a workaholic the first 15, 20 years of my career. I almost never even took a vacation. That was a, 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 a that was a mistake. So I want you to think about money's important, but not to work in a place that isn't the right fit, not to work for people that are driven by profit when you're interested in quality care, not to work for a place where you have to supervise three PAs because that's part of the business model to make your salary. Go places where you'll be comfortable, where you want to live, and focus on all the other things that are much more important than money. Because I am pretty sure that when we're on our deathbeds, we're not going to say, we wish we did more money. We wish we made more money. We wish we did more surgery. We wish we did more forehead flaps or more Botox. You're going to say, I wish I spent more time with my family doing the things that are important. And that's the question that drives me every day. And I wish when I was your age, I thought about it that way. So just that's the, that we, we have to talk about money, but focus on the global picture, which I, I think we have to start talking about. Thank you again for joining us on the Future of Dermatology podcast. Residency mentorship is always a high priority of ours, and we always look forward to our annual residency panel 
and a huge thanks to all the faculty members who always take part of this and impart their wisdom. Thank you again. 